we are officially in an election year, which means we're <laughs> sort of groaning already. I didn't even say anything yet. <laughs> we're in for plenty of speeches and debates. Yay. I recently watched a, a mashup of political debates over the last uh, number of decades that chronicled how we've gone from substance to shouting. And uh, in a clip from a presidential debate in 1960, JFK calmly asserted, he said, I, I think Mr. Nixon is an effective leader of his party. The question before us is which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States? Nixon, with similar decorum, said of uh, JFK, he said, our disagreement is not about the goals for America, but only about the means to meet those goals. Very fair and calm. In a clip from a 1980 debate, moderator Barbara Walters asked Jimmy Carter about his opponent's greatest weakness. To which Carter replied, Barbara, reluctant as I am to say anything critical about Governor Reagan, I'll try to answer your question. Imagine that. <laughs> In a 1984 debate, Reagan said of his opponent, I find myself in so much agreement with Mr. Mondale. Well, we've come a long way. Political debates today quickly devolve into shouting matches and interruptions and speaking over each other and name calling. And, and I don't mean to, to comment much further than what I've already said about our political process or political uh, debates or anything along those lines. But as I watched that video, I had the haunting question in my mind, are our politicians today leading and shaping our demeanor as a people, or are they reflecting and a representation of our demeanor as a people? So if it's the former, if they're leading and shaping our demeanor as a people, then we are being shaped to expect such leadership. We're being shaped to expect that's what you do when you disagree with somebody. If it's the latter and they're a reflection and a representation of our uh, demeanor as a people, then we're already demanding such leadership. And if somebody doesn't act in that way, well, they might as well get off the stage because that's what we've come to demand and ask of our leaders. Either way, it's not good. But church, what is good leadership? What is good leadership in the face of opposition? How do we disagree well? Do you expect a certain type of boldness and a certain type of power before you? And if so, what does that look like? And in your own life, as you, as you have your own debates, as you have your own controversies that you enter into, as you have your own conversations with people, how do you interact with opposing ideas to your own? We're actually going to look at a text this morning in 2 Corinthians that helps us navigate that and helps us think well about that, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. So if you have a copy of God's Word, join me there. We're resuming our series through the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in the first six verses this morning. What I'd like to argue here from our text is that divine realities dictate the way we interact with friend and foe alike. So divine realities, supernatural realities, 
dictate how we interact with friend and foe alike. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6. We're going to look at this in, in two, under two headings. Uh, number one is that a, a Christian has boldness at the right time. And number two, a Christian has power of the right type. All right, so how do we interact with, with others? There's a divine realities that are to dictate the way we interact with friend and foe alike. And so number one, a Christian has boldness at the right time. And number two, a Christian has power of the right type. Follow along as I read God's word. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. First, a Christian has boldness at the right time. This text is we're jumping back into this series in uh, chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, this marks the final section of the book of 2 Corinthians, so 13 chapters. The first uh, seven chapters, after some introductory material, Paul spends a good deal of time talking about the, the nature of his ministry, the nature of his mission, the nature of Christian ministry and Christian min, uh, mission in general. Uh, and then chapters 8 and 9, which we just looked at at the end of uh, last year, is uh, the, these two big chapters on uh, talking about money and finances, where there was a, a financial collection that was being collected from both the church in Corinth as well as other churches in the region to be delivered to saints in Jerusalem who were struggling. And so that's what we just finished looking at the chapters 8 and 9 of this big financial collection, Paul talking about that. Now, as he gets into these final three chapters of the book, uh, he's kind of turning a corner, and the, the theme of these, this final section is, is really Paul defending his apostleship. He's defending himself. This is one of the reasons, 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, because there's, there's just such a, there's like a raw uh, realness to this book. That not everybody loved Paul. <laughs> and some people had some things against him. And, and so it's just a, it's a, it's a real authentic book where he's uh, addressing some of his detractors and defending his apostleship before them. And that's really what we get in these final three chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians. And as we do that, as we get into this final chapter, you can look there and see it in your text. The first thing that Paul does as he gets into that is to address one of the accusations that had been made about him. You see, there was a, a group in Corinth uh, later on in chapter 11 who'll, who'll refer to them as the super apostles. Right? So these are, like, these are like the hotshot apostles and kind of self-designated these super apostles. We'll get into more of that as we go in these last three chapters. But there was this group of, of, of people known as the uh, that he kind of sarcastically, I think, refers to as the super apostles, who were criticizing Paul for being rather unimpressive. They were criticizing him that, that in his personal uh, appearance, uh, when he's face-to-face -face with you, he's kind of weak. He's rather un 
impressive in person. He's, he's just a guy. Right? They, the super apostles, were, were bold and forceful and assertive. They had the resumes. They were the leaders. They were the impressive ones. Paul was, was kind of nothing. He was humble. He was meek. He was rather soft. Sure, he'll try to be a big shot in his letters when he's hiding behind his keyboard, right? When he's hiding behind his pen, he's going to fire off these, 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 uh, these letters, and he's, he's kind of a big shot in his letters. Remember the severe letter, Corinthians, that he wrote between 1st and 2nd Corinthians that we have? The, the severe letter where he was real hard and sharp. Yeah, he was a tough guy in that letter, but when he shows up in person, he's, he's nobody. He's weak. So Paul, in the first three verses here in chapter 10, establishes two things. He says, first, I'll be bold when I need to be. And second, I would hope that I wouldn't need to be so bold with you. Let's look at both of those in the reverse order in which I just gave them. First, he says, I I would hope that I would need not be so bold among you, Corinthians. And this is true, I think, in the Christian life in general. The Christian need not always be so bold, as we're understanding boldness in this passage. Not not boldness in the sense of having a a confidence about us, but in the sense of that assertive, forceful, in-your-face type of ministry and leadership. And this is why Paul says what he does there in verse 1. He says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's how he starts I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so if his opponents are saying, Paul, you're so meek and you're so gentle, he's like, well, I'm kind of in good company. (laughs) Jesus was meek and gentle, or as Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, that he is gentle and lowly. He is tender and empathetic and patient. And so we, as Christians, when we are saved by Jesus, regardless of our natural dispositions and our natural inclinations, our natural personality that we may have, when we are saved by Jesus, we are to become more and more like him, more and more transformed into his image. And so regardless of what the the, the rhetoric was like and the debate was like and the leadership was like in his day, Paul says, I I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, because this is what the Christian is supposed to be like. This is what the Christian is supposed to look like, to image and reflect Christ. And so he appeals by the character of Christ. I appeal to you by the, by the uh, meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he says this. He says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when away. He, he's referring to, th- that, that's what they're saying about him, right? So he's paraphrasing their accusations against him. You guys are saying, I'm, I'm bold when I'm away, and, I'm, or, and then I'm, I'm kind of weak when I'm face to face with you. I'm humble when face to face with you. He says to the Corinthians, he picks it back up, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show such confidence before you. And church, that's right. Whether we're talking about the first century Corinth or whether we're talking about 21st century Alexandria, mature Christians are easily edified. Mature Christians are easily corrected. Mature Christians are easily exhorted. Mature Christians are easily convinced by the word and by gentle arguments. Every now and then I'll see a video, as I'm sure you do, go around of some preacher screaming and berating his flock. 
There's typically a number of things wrong in those videos, not least of which is the content of what those fools are saying. But another thing that I think when I see those videos is that I don't think mature Christians need to be cajoled in such a way. One of the things I love here about our church is I talk to other pastors who ask about how ministry is going and what things I enjoy. The first thing I always say is I love how our church responds to the word of God. That's just something I love about you. Delray Baptist Church is how we respond to the word of God. There is a hunger for and a receptivity to and a readiness to hear and to obey the word of God. Now certainly we aren't all like that all of the time. I'm not always like that all of the time. So we pray that we, by God's grace, would continue on such a path as a church and individually as we see more of it realized in our lives if we're not so easily led. But church, that's an area where we should be encouraged and an area that you always want to be strong in. We are easily led, easily edified, easily convinced by what God's word would say to us. This is what Paul wants to be true when he comes to the Corinthians. I hope I wouldn't have to come and shout you down. I hope I wouldn't have to come and be so bold. I, would, I hope I wouldn't have to come and do that among you, that you would be ready to hear God's word and to respond to it. And so that's what Paul says. He hopes he would need not be so bold with the Corinthian Christians. But secondly, he says, I'll be bold when I need to be. Look at verse 2 again. Right? I hope I don't have to show such boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So Paul does indeed plan on being bold when he arrives in Corinth. He plans on showing some sort of boldness in Corinth, not against the church, but against those who have proven themselves to be opponents of the church, those who have proven themselves to be opponents of true gospel ministry, those who are opposing the apostolic ministry and the apostolic approach and the apostolic character. There's this group of people, the super apostles and any others who are standing in rebellion to Jesus and opposing true doctrine and true teaching of the word. And Paul says, I plan on being bold with them. I hope you see here as we even consider this and read these verses that boldness and again that aggressiveness, assertive forcefulness shouldn't be the main gear that you drive in, but it's a gear that you can shift into when needed. Such assertiveness and aggressiveness and forcefulness isn't to be the baseline of how any of us operate, but certainly an option when it's called for. There are barriers to such boldness that I think we have, which is worth some introspection and prayerful consideration by us. Because it's important for us at times to speak up for the right things, to confront certain errors, to challenge, to rebuke to exhort, and if we never switch into that gear, why? Could be fear of man, could be fear of persecution, could be lack of confidence in God's word. I'd like to speak against that thing. I'm just not that confident in what God's word says to the contrary. Could be a low self-image that says, who am I? Who am I to challenge anybody on anything? I just ask you to consider what barriers may hold you back and to take those before the Lord and community. Because we need you. We need all of us, all Christians, all those who are following Jesus in this church. We, we need us to, made in God's image, empowered by God's spirit, equipped with God's word, to stand for truthfulness in our generation. We need that. 
So thoughtfully go before the Lord if, that's a, if there are certain barriers in front of you. But I think we take Jesus as exemplar here of what we see Paul doing in front of the Corinthian church. Now Jesus was meek and gentle, not just with his followers, but, but with everyone, with saints and sinners alike. Regardless of where people found themselves and what their relationship looked like to him, Jesus was meek and gentle with saints and sinners alike, was he not? But bold against those who were propagating what was false. Bold against those who would abuse others. Bold against those who would use others. Bold against those who would deceive the church. Bold against those who would promote what was false or to mislead God's children. To those who would distort the gospel. He was absolutely bold in the face of such people. Delray Baptist Church, may we do likewise. Gentle with all, but ready to be bold when the gospel is distorted or when people are deceived or when sin is celebrated, when sin is cherished over Christ. May we be so bold as well. Such boldness is really an act of love. Though it's not the baseline, as I've said, that we are to operate out of, we see it as an act of love uh, so that we will be bold when needed to love people appropriately. And then secondly, so that we will be ready to receive such boldness from others if occasion ever requires. And so when people are critiquing or correcting or disagreeing, it's helpful for all of us to stop and ask, and in what ways are they trying to love me well? And in what ways are they actually right? There's always room for that in our own hearts and minds. There's a good word here from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. There's a resource that we have our, our uh, pastoral uh, interns read every year. I, I love reading through this. Uh, every time it's, it's discussed in pastoral internships, it's, it's called Lectures to My Students. It's a book of a series of lectures that uh, uh, Spurgeon delivered over a course of time to uh, people who were training for the pastorate. And there's a lecture, lecture number 12. It's called The Minister's Ordinary Conversation. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, in all probability, sensible conversation will sometimes drift into controversy. And here, many a good man runs upon a snag. The sensible minister will be particularly gentle in argument. He, above all men, should not make the mistake of fancying that there is force and temper and power in speaking angrily. A little bit further down in the passage, he says this, Try to avoid debating with people. State your opinion and let them state theirs. If you see that a stick is crooked and you want people to see how crooked it is, lay a straight rod down beside it and that will be quite enough. But if you are drawn into controversy, use very hard arguments and very soft words. You cannot convince a man by tugging at his reason, but you can persuade him by winning his affections. Friends, that's what we need. In a cultural moment that does the exact opposite of that, in a cultural moment that uses very hard words and very soft arguments, may we be people who do the exact opposite. As Spurgeon says, use soft words and hard arguments. This is what Paul is saying he's going to do when he comes to the Corinthians. And for us, a Christian, 
will do the same thing. Christians will have boldness at the right time. We will have soft words and hard arguments. But he goes on in the text. The second thing that we see here is not only that the Christian has that type of, of, uh, of ministry and that type of relationship to those with whom we are engaging, that, that as we are engaging with friend and foe alike, that we have boldness at the right time, knowing when to step up and take that stand and, and when to say, I, I would hope that I would not have to be so bold among you. The Christian also has power of the right type. Look again at the text. Pick it back up with me in verse 3. He's just talked in verse 2 about these people who accuse him and the other apostles of walking according to the flesh. And he says this in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the super apostles were suspecting them of walking according to the flesh. That Paul and company are weak, they're powerless, unimpressive. And therefore, they are to be rejected and ignored. And Paul says, well, it's true that we walk in the flesh. You see that in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3. It's true that we walk in the flesh, meaning in the world. That's what he means there. When he, there's a difference here in the text, and this is going to be really helpful to understand what he's saying here. There's a difference between when Paul says in the flesh and according to the flesh. And so he says it's true that we walk in the flesh, meaning we, we operate in this world just like everybody else does. We walk in the flesh in the world, surely we operate in this worldly, fleshly, temporal system just like everybody else does. But, second half of verse 3, that's not the same thing as waging war according to the flesh. So he says we operate in the flesh, but we are not of the flesh. You see, we, we might seem from a worldly perspective to be operating in a worldly way, but that's not the plane on which our battle is fought. Our battle is fought on another plain our battle was fought somewhere else and so in verse 4 he says for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power Paul is here establishing what's established elsewhere in the New Testament actually earlier in this book that we're studying now second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 18 he says we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says the reality around us is not just the things that we can touch and taste and feel and measure. But there's an unseen reality all around us. Regardless of whether you believe that or not, that is true. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our battle isn't with mere humans, human institutions, but is fought on another plane. And when you think about it, in the flesh, waging war of divine power in the area of spiritual realities and not simply earth, earthly realities, that is Christianity. Because that is, that's literally what Jesus did. Jesus took on humanity, right, in the flesh, operating in the flesh. Jesus took on 
humanity, but was fighting a spiritual battle. And so people, in the same way, mocked Jesus and jeered at Jesus and said, what a weak person as he is operating in the flesh. Right? This, this was the charge against Jesus, right? What a, what a weak person. If you're this prophet, wear this blindfold and tell us which one of us is hitting you. If you really are the son of God, take yourself down from the cross. Prove it. But Jesus was waging another war. He was engaging in something with weapons of divine power. He was about to defeat the grave and make salvation possible for you and for me. That dynamic, operating in the flesh but fighting a different battle, that is Christianity. That is why we have salvation. That is why we have something to sing about this morning. That is why we celebrate this Lord's Supper that is before us. Because Jesus stood in our place, taking our punishment, bearing our penalty in his body on the cross. It looks so weak. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. That is the story of Christianity. That Jesus would step in our place, not to, not to conquer how if somebody if were dreaming up a religion, would dream of this uh, Messiah figure who would come in and ride in on a white horse and save the day. Or somebody inventing religion who would say, well, this is something that we work for and we earn our way and we do these things before God to tip the scales in our favor. No, it appears utterly weak, the gospel of Christianity. The good news is that Jesus, in weakness, died because the way to life was death. His taking our sins on himself that we might have life and freedom and forgiveness of sins. That is the work of the cross. That is what Jesus did in our place. So this dynamic that we see here is Christianity. And Paul is merely following suit. Saying, I don't have to come with worldly power. Because what we're about is not a worldly battle. We have other weapons of divine power. So back here in 2 Corinthians 10 where Paul says there, there was a war raging. But he's not fighting it with weapons of the world. He's fighting it with weapons that are divinely powerful. And then he envisions the battle according to three stages. According to three And listen, as, as students of scripture, this is where it's, it's really important for us to, to see the image that Paul is using here. Because if you don't understand the image that Paul is using here... Verse 6 is going to be really confusing. Like, what is he, who's he punishing? Is he punishing the Corinthians? Like, what, what is happening here? If we don't understand the image that Paul is using, verse 6 is going to be really confusing, and you're going to misapply verse 5, which almost everybody does. All right? So here's the image that Paul is using here. Is It's an image of uh, stages of battle in the ancient world. And so if you were going to go and attack a city, if you were going to engage in some sort of warfare in the first century, the first thing you would do is you would go and you would destroy the stronghold. So you would take out the city wall, you would take down the towers where people were shooting at you, you would destroy the fortifications that existed there for those people. That's why walls were so important. You see it all through scripture, the importance of walls for protection and for identity among God's people and, or, and among any city, really. And so the first thing you would do is you engage in warfare is that you would destroy strongholds. The second thing that you would do is you would take prisoners. You would take captives. You take the captives away. And the third thing that you would do is, is once that was done, once the, the, once the strongholds were destroyed and those were taken down and once the prisoners would take, were, were taken uh, and you've kind of set up shot, you would punish uh, any further rebellion that existed. 
You would punish those who were still disobedient, those who were still in rebellion. So that was just a standard way that you were going to operate if you were attacking a city. You're going to destroy strongholds, you're going to uh, take captives, and you're going to punish rebellion. Let's think through these three phases here, because Paul uses that here in the text. First, the Christian, he says, goes after and destroys strongholds. Paul says that's what we do. That's what we do in ministry. We're we're not operating on a worldly sense. He's not talking about destroying people. But there is some sort of stronghold that he sees us in Christian ministry, in the Christian life, destroying strongholds. Taking out these fortifications. What does he mean by that? Well, keep reading. Verse 5, he defines it. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So, Where there are arguments or opinions that oppose the truthfulness of God's word, that oppose the the message of the gospel, we want to meet that head on and destroy those arguments. Again, Paul's not talking about destroying people. He's not not talking about doing physical battle, but rather attacking the, the falsehoods and the lies and the misrepresentations and the untruths. That people are believing and sharing and spreading and propagating. To reason with people. This is what we should do today. To reason with people for why non-Christian worldviews are internally incoherent and inconsistent. And help people to see that. That what you're believing, it doesn't make any sense. It's not according to truth. To engage friends who are ensnared by false religion and to show them the the beauty and the exclusivity of Christ. That there is one way, one truth, one life. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. To persuasively argue against attacks made against scripture generally or against orthodox doctrine specifically. To engage those attacks and to seek to tear them down and destroy them. Remember, we don't use the, war, the world's weapons. But Paul says we have divine power for this task. He said we don't use the world's weapons, but we have divine power for this task. Church, immerse yourself in, in Scripture. This is how we, we come to recognize in the first place what are those things that are false? What are those things that are in opposition to the knowledge of God? What are those untruths? What are those half-truths? We, we do that by knowing God's word and immersing ourselves in it to, to have more and more Bible intake, not so we check things off a list and a Bible reading plan, or not so we can try to feel like there's some sort of weird karma thing going on and God doesn't hate me today because I had my time in the word in the morning. All right, that's not why we do it. Right, we want to know him more so we can worship him more fully. And so that we can be the type of people who would spot that and say, hey, th- that's an argument raised against the knowledge of God. We are fighting with spiritual weapons. We immerse ourselves in Scripture. We arm ourselves with the gospel, with a, with a, with a sound, firm standing on gospel truth, a helmet of salvation, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We go to battle on our knees in prayer. Against such worldviews and beliefs that friends and loved ones and the stranger we meet on the street would believe and hold to. So church, avail yourselves of those weapons and have more and more of those things 
in your life and also just perhaps challenge yourself to avail yourself of a resource that would help you grapple with these ideas. You could read Tim Keller's The Reason for God. Rebecca McLaughlin has a, a book called Confronting Christianity, which just goes through things like 10 or 12 questions for the world's largest religion. She also has one for teens that's called uh, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. You read Jonathan Morrow's Questioning the Bible. He considers 12 challenges against the Bible's authority and helps us to have a great confidence in God's word. You could read Nancy Piercy's Total Truth. Read Sam Chan's Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Listen to John Stone Street at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And on and on we go. We have a wealth of resources to help guard ourselves and to help us recognize where there are uh, ideas and, and beliefs that are set up against the knowledge of God and to be able to take those and destroy those. Again, not in violence against people, but certainly in violence against ideas. Wanting to stand for truth. And have an apologetic to our ministry. Second thing he says here in the text, look again. So first of all, the first thing we want to do is destroy strongholds. We want to tear those down. We want to engage on ideas that are set up against the knowledge of God. And they say, that is not true. Here's why. Second thing, though, is to take captives. To take captives. You see it there at the end of verse 5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now typically when people quote 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, they do so in a way that refers to their own thought life. Right? Have a problem with a wandering mind? Take every thought captive. Are you struggling with doubt? Take every thought captive. Are you mentally flirting with a sin? Take every thought captive. Now, church, those are great encouragements. That's just not what Paul's talking about here. We have other texts for that. So those, those, are, those are things we should do. You can read Philippians 4. You can read Colossians 3. You can read Romans 6, Romans 8, Romans 12. We have all kinds of texts that talks about our mental thought life and what we should do with our thought lives and things that we should think about and how we should meditate on the things of the spirit and not the things of the world and how we should meditate on things that are good and godly and holy and beautiful and pure and right. We, we have all kinds of verses for that. That's not what Paul's talking about here. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 is not first and foremost about your own thoughts that are being taken captive, but about other people's thoughts that are being taken captive. Again, this is why understanding the military imagery here is important for our interpretation of this text because there are lofty opinions and these lofty arguments that are out there being raised against the knowledge of God. We want to destroy those arguments and then we want to take the thoughts of those people captive to obey Jesus. You see the context in which he's talking about this? We are going to battle. There are these opinions and thoughts and worldviews that are raised against the knowledge of God. We want to tear those down and then we want people to obey Jesus. We're not just out here trying to win verbal scuffles. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we're to be about. No, we want to see people obey Jesus. We want people who oppose Jesus with those lofty opinions against the knowledge of God to now serve Jesus. Now, certainly, 
this can end up in personal application straight out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Right? If you are the one entertaining arguments against the knowledge of God, if you are the one holding lofty opinions against the knowledge of God, then yes, those need to be destroyed and your thoughts need to be taken captive to the obedience of Jesus. Right? But it's most directly a verse about ministry in which we desire to engage those who are perspectively set against God, or maybe those who have not submitted to Christ as their Lord, and we want to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus. And again, I want you to note that in that pursuit, we're not just, our goal here isn't just for people to think Christian things merely, right? Support this moral position and you're good. Believe this doctrine and you're good. Have this list of doctrines that you believe and you're good. Align with this theological camp and you're good. No, we want to actually obey Jesus. To be formed by him and shaped by him in all of our day-to-day and all of our habits and all of our rhythms. To be people who are formed and shaped by him and who want to follow him and obey him. This is why he came. This is why Jesus came. This is why he came and died in our place. This is why he's offered us salvation as a free gift for all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Not just that you might believe doctrine A or doctrine B. So that you might love him. So you might submit to him. So you might surrender to him. So that you might say to him, change my thinking, change my way of life. Help me to, to follow you and to love you and to make decisions that would honor you and to lead my life and think things and to say things and to act and do things that would honor you and to bring you glory. He wants us to obey him. And this is what we want for others. We want to not just deal with their arguments and, and try to destroy these mental strongholds and these arguments that are against him, but we want to plead with people as I plead with you now if you're in that position. To obey Jesus. We want to take your thoughts captive. You're saying you're trying to convert me here this morning? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what we want. We want your thoughts in captivity to Jesus because that's the only place where true life is found. And this is why he came. That our thoughts might be captive to him and we might follow him and worship him and love him. Now on that note, let me, let me just give a direct specific application here. I want to say something to those of you who are in education, which is really quite a large swath of our church when you think about it. Right? Whether, that's, whether that's education in the church, you're teaching some of our classes, uh, ministering in our children's ministry, uh, discipling other people, younger brothers or sisters in the faith, or whether that's those uh, in the home teaching and training your children, or whether that's those who are occupationally employed in education, people who are in the education field or teachers who are here in our church, this is your job. In the home, in the church, in the workplace, this is what you're doing. So be encouraged when times are tough, when semesters are long, when progress seems slow. You have the opportunity and the privilege of being on the front lines of taking down strongholds. You're on the front lines of, of destroying those arguments set against the knowledge of God and then working to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. What a high calling. 
What a beautiful thing to employ yourself in. So friends who are involved in that way in the church, in the home, in the workplace, make that your focus and your joy. Regardless of your subject matter, regardless of your position, and this is what I want to be about. Taking thoughts captive through the obedience of Jesus. That's what education is. Listen, it won't happen for any of us without intentionality, right, just because we're in the right position. All of us need to give prayerful thought and effort towards such an apologetic ministry. Instilling that in our own hearts and in the hearts of of, uh, those younger than us in the church. So that when that skeptical professor says the Bible's been copied so many times you can't believe what it says. That our kids say, I've heard that one before. It's not true. Let, let Let me give you an argument for truthfulness. My mind's been taken captive by Christ and I can respond with truth. May we instill this so that when that coach or that teammate presses their view on gender or sexuality, we can say, I've heard that one before too. My mind's been taken captive by Christ. Let me, let me respond with loving truth. So that when you hear at work that Christianity is evil because it promotes hatred or denigration of women or homophobia or anti-intellectualism or whatever it is, so you can say, I've heard that one before. But my mind's been taken captive by Christ and I can respond with truth. Destroy strongholds. Take thoughts captive. Punish rebellion. Now, hold on. <laughs> this is a little explain again. This is why it's important to realize what Paul is doing with the military imagery here. So, right, he, he says, this is what we do in ministry. We want to destroy, destroy these strongholds. We want to, uh, the, this, these lofty opinions and things that are set against the knowledge of God. We want to tear those down. We want to take those people's thoughts captive. And he's talking to the Corinthian church. And he says, that, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I've been trying to do in his ministry with them. And that's what he intends to do. And then he says, uh, to punish rebellion as well. He fully anticipates when he arrives in Corinth that that everything we've said so far has been what he's been about and it's what he's been trying to accomplish. Remember, he's been in a long-standing both letter-writing and personal visits uh, relationship with this Corinthian church. So there's been a lot of this destroying of strongholds. There's been a lot of this taking thoughts captive. But he fully intends when he arrives there that there are going to be those, verse 6, who are still in rebellion uh, against the things of God. That there, he knows there's a spiritual battle in the minds of the people in Corinth. And he wants to take their thoughts captive to Christ. But realistically, there's going to be those who are still in opposition. Those who are still in rebellion. And he says he's ready to bring discipline against them. Right, some sort of censure against them. Some sort of public rebuke against them. Potentially even an excommunication from the church. Depending on their state and their lack of repentance. He doesn't go into all of that here. But it's surely that's something in his mind when he's talking about punishing disobedience. But note that he first wants the Corinthian church to act. That's why he says what he does. That's why he says when your obedience is complete. He's not talking about punishing the Corinthian church once they've been obedient. No, he wants the rebels to be disciplined, but he first wants the Corinthians to act. He says, I'll put the rebels in their place when I show up. I'm going to be bold with them. But I want you guys to do it on your own. I want you to stop putting up with this foolishness in the church. I want you to stop doing it first. So I want to see your obedience in the face of these people who are spouting off all this nonsense. 
And then when I show up, I'll be ready to punish disobedience once your obedience is complete. I think that's what Paul is saying there in verse 6. So church leadership may desire to step in in various occasions, but the church congregations are rightly that main line of defense against error in doctrine or in life around us. Church, do you see why we said at the beginning that divine realities dictate the way that we interact with friend and foe alike? If you take nothing else away from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, take this away, that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. And one of the main arenas of the battle, if not the main arena of the battle, is for minds and thoughts. Will we think God's thoughts after him? Will we submit to truth that he has revealed to us? Will we submit to his word and truth? So I want you to take that away, that we are in that battle, and it's a battle for minds and for thoughts. And I want you to know, Christian, that you can operate in full confidence, equipped with the good news of Jesus, equipped with the holy word of God, equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Access to God by faith and prayer. We who know Jesus, we have the right type of power, divine power for destroying strongholds. And may we discern the right time for boldness that we might see him glorified and known and obeyed among all nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your strengthening by your spirit, for the glory and renown of Jesus. God, help us to see those arguments, to spot those arguments, those lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Would you guard us from being those people ourselves, from, from entertaining and holding on to such positions and such thoughts and doctrines and ways of life? Help us to see those and to spot those. And then by your spirit, would you give us the, the, the power of the, of the right type, these spiritual weapons engaging with gospel truth, engaging with the truth of your word, going on our knees in prayer. God, help us, because our goal is to see people worshiping Jesus and obeying him. Help us to do it and help us to engage in a ministry with the right kind of demeanor that would glorify you and honor you and lead to people worshiping and knowing Jesus. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.